Greetings, friends, family. It is the weekend of Sunday, March the 7th, the first weekend of March. We continue with our study of the book of Colossians. Today, picking up with chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, I'm reading from the ESV translation. Let no one disqualify you. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on aestheticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its relegations, its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let me pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be holy, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. There are some things that would seem, according to this text, that can ruin faith. Here in this ancient city of Colossae, almost 2,000 years ago, the, the, the same attack was being made upon Christian faith as, as we find today. In this passage, beginning in verse 16 of chapter 2, we discover the dangerous traps that await us on every side as we journey toward the goal of this personal relationship and the ultimate union with God. We learn really that there are no new heresies. You see, it's beyond the mind of man to invent new era. We find the same era, the same things that can derail the spiritual life repeated cyclically through the centuries. These early Christians faced a hodgepodge of spiritual era, a mishmash of philosophy, misleading ideas, some from Jewish backgrounds, some from the Gentile, some arising from pagan superstitions, and some from the teachings of the Far East. And, and we too face that same kind of mixture of wrong ideas in, in, with our faith today. So here then are the things that can hurt believers. First, the first one Paul takes up is what we call, or what we'll call empty ritualism. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Verse 16, food, resp food restrictions, special diets, observance of special ceremonies and, and days obviously arose out of the Jewish practices. And God gave them many of these ceremonies in the Old Testament as shadows, as pictures. The problem was that people were performing these rituals mechanically, simply going through the motions. And that, Paul says, can destroy the true nature, the vitality of faith. 
These particular religious ceremonies were rituals concerning the year, the month, the week. The new moon was a monthly observance, and the Sabbath day, of course, came every week. And we find a parallel to these observances today. Whenever people place a special value on religious performance. You know, it hasn't been that long since the Catholic Church relented its restriction against eating meat on Fridays. That was an example of a dietary restriction designed to impart a religious value to life. Many of us give up uh, pleasurable things during Lent, that 40-day period that we're in now before Easter, because we think that it will improve our relationship with God. But we miss the point if we're doing it as the thing rather than what leads to the thing. And, and many Jewish people will keep a, a kosher kitchen, although a lot of them don't even know why. In, in the early part of the 1900s, hardly any Christians who were evangelicals would travel on Sunday because they were taught that Sunday was a, a carryover of the Jewish Sabbath and that it was wrong to work or travel on that day. This is the kind of thing that Paul's talking about here. Any kind of religious performance that is done without meaning or personal significance falls into this category that Paul's describing. But, you know, we're bound to say, well, wait a minute. Aren't some of these observances given to us by God to remind us of the truth? Isn't there a value to mental or physical health to be gained by doing them? And Paul answers that objection in verse 17. These rituals, he declares, are a mere shadow of, of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Once the reality has been realized, shadows are of no value then. Shadows are pictures given in advance designed to prepare us for something, but if we have found Jesus, we do not need the shadows anymore. Paul even includes the Sabbath day as an example. I know that's that's touchy. You know, I carry with me pictures of Amy, my wife, and, and our kids. I value these photographs. And, and I look at them. I especially look at them when I'm away from home. But what would you think if I propped up these pictures all over my house and, and talked to them and, and tried to relate to them? What if the pictures started to replace the people that they represent? And that's what Paul says is wrong with shadows. If we still place primary value on the shadow after the reality has come, we destroy our participation in the value of that reality. The reality is Jesus. We've said that over and over again. He is the reality. It's Jesus. He's the center of all life, and he's the source of excitement, and, and especially in the life of a believer. He is the one who accompanies us through life, comfort in times of need and strength, when we're being tempted, he's a place of refuge to run to when we're in trouble or uncertain. And to lose him is to lose all source of excitement, of vitality. You see, there's a danger in observing shadows for the, for the observation of shadows, if you will. That's why this paragraph begins with the word, therefore. The previous section pointed out that Christ, that, that all that Christ is to us now. So Paul is saying, having him, therefore... Don't let anyone spoil you by involving you in a mechanical performance that's going to cancel out the reality. The second thing that can ruin our spiritual life is a false spirituality is what is what we'll call it, a false spirituality. And, and Paul says it like this, 
in verses 18 and 19. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He's lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as, as God causes it to grow. The key characteristics here are a false humility and worship of angels. They're, they're two invariable elements of false teaching in this context. You see, in Colossae, there was this ancient teaching that would later be called Gnosticism, meaning knowledge, which holds that there's a, there's a hierarchy of angels between all people, all humans, and God, and it, they must be placated and acknowledged, and, and that one's knowledge, which begin really in ignorance, is increased with, in, until at last we, are, we entered into the fullness of the understanding of the oneness of all things. So that, that ancient heresy appears widely today under a lot of things, but all of them kind of fall under the umbrella of the New Age movement. And Paul refers to it here as false humility. It claims to move us beyond self, but in actual practice, if we examine the teachings like this, we discover that they focus on the self. You see, the real goal is to develop our, you know, all of our self powers. That is why it's called the human potential movement. The idea that everything is already there inside of you and all you need to do is bring it out and develop our possibilities and full potential. I saw it a post on Instagram that said, the light you seek is your own lantern. See, that's the idea. You already have it all. Now now discover it. And numerous groups today offer to help in this. Transpersonal psychology, transactional analysis, etc. All of the all of these are designed to help us discover, help you discover the great potential that is supposedly wrapped up in you. Along with this comes the idea of the worship of angels, as Paul describes it. That opens up the whole world of, of the occult and manifestations of worlds and strange spirit beings, of astrology, of Ouija boards, tarot cards, assorted holy people, psychics, swamis, yogas, yogis, gurus. All of these purport to offer help in increasing our understanding of who we are and what we can do so as to fulfill the possibility of our humanity. What's the danger of that? Well, Paul says it very plainly. It disqualifies us for the prize. He's been referring to this prize all throughout the letter. It will eliminate us from the race, removing us from the possibility of experiencing the mystery. And here it is again, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is the great mystery which God himself has provided us, by which we have immediate and continual access to the fullness of God in Christ and by him strength and help comfort along our, you know, along the way of life. And such era effectively removes all opportunity for that continued experience of love, joy, and peace. So if we listen to and observe the, the advocates of the New Age movement, we discover that there's very little evidence that they derive real satisfaction from their experiences. Fascination, yes. Satisfaction, no. You see, they are forever seeking. They are never at rest. They're on a quest for a will of the wisp that seems to be further away from them the longer they pursue it. 
such pursuit effectively removes us from experiencing the prize that God has in mind for us, daily fellowship with a loving and living Lord. As we said last week, we have all that we need. It is Christ himself, the mystery, the hope of glory in us. The Revised Standard and the New American Standard versions both agree that it should be translated taking his stand on visions. The New Age movement makes a great deal of visions, of psychic experiences with spirit beings, of taking trips outside the body, seeing things that others cannot see, and and then beginningly, gradually introducing to strange teachings and ideas. And with this seeing a vision, visions, Paul links an incredible conceit that claims divine honors for oneself. He puts it like this, his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. Eric Fromm, whose writings were an early expression of this type of teaching, said, God is a symbol of man's own powers, which he tries to realize in his life. Some of the current New Age writers come right out and say, we are gods of our own universe, and we are in complete control of all that happens to us. We are God himself. Perhaps the best answer to such a claim was expressed by G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton, who earlier in the century, when he said to someone who, who made a similar claim, he said this, he said, so you are the creator and redeemer of the world? Well, what a small world it must be. What a little heaven you must inhabit with angels no bigger than butterflies. How sad it must be to be God and, and, and an inadequate God. Is there really no life fuller and no love more marvelous than yours? And is it really in your small and painful pity that all flesh must put its faith? How much happier you would be, how much more of you there would be if the hammer of a higher God could smash your small cosmos, scattering the stars like spangles and leave you in open, free like other men to look up as well as down. If you claim to be God yourself, you do not have anyone above you to look up to. You can only look down on everybody else. That's the danger and the folly of this kind of thing. A modern proverb answers it well. There are two things one should never forget. One, there is only one God. And two, you ain't him. End quote. In verse 19, Paul tells us what's wrong with this, this teaching. He's lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported, held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Verse 19. Someone who has become involved in this kind of teaching cuts themselves off from the head, and when the head is cut off, a human body, well, all life ceases. And according to Paul, the same thing happens when anyone has lost contact with their head. They also lose connection with the whole body, which is the church. They're no longer fed by teachers and by shepherds, the ligaments, the sinews, and therefore they stop growing completely. There's still a third danger to faith which we'll call asceticism. And the apostle brings it before us, Paul brings it before us in closing this section of Scripture. If you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. 
These are destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teaching. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom where their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul is here describing an, an overdeveloped zeal, a dedication that goes far beyond a true believer's discipline and seeks to please God by extreme forms of self-denial. Dedication and discipline are certainly a proper part in the life of a believer. We must often make ourselves do what God wants us to do simply because we love him. That is the proper motive. And Paul has already commended the Colossians because they led disciplined, well-ordered lives. But we can make a God of discipline. We can take perverse delight in making ourselves do difficult things that win the approval of others. And we imagine God as well. As a monk, Martin Luther fell into this before he became a believer. He would lie naked in his cell all night long in the bitter cold and beat his body and torture himself trying to find peace of heart. But Paul says this is all wrong. Lesser forms of it take what he clearly describes here as the negative approaches. Don't don't touch, don't handle, don't taste. These prohibitions are usually thundered at us. And I don't deny that refraining from some of these things is is perfectly proper, and it's a perfectly proper discipline of the Spirit. But any idea that giving up things of itself is pleasing to God is wrong. Christianity is a positive faith. If we want to know what pleases God, we read the last 12 verses of Romans 12. We'll not find anything negative there. Rather, we are asked to bless those who persecute us to love the unlovely, minister to strangers in our midst, do things that other people cannot do. That is how true faith is is demonstrated. In the church, this becomes what we call, when it's wrong, legalism, which is to pursue holiness by self-effort instead of accepting the holiness that God freely gives by faith and then living it out. See, a legalist looks at life and says everything is wrong unless you can prove by the Bible that it is right. Therefore, we must have nothing to do with anything that the Bible does not say is right. And that reduces life to a very narrow range of activity. But the biblical believer, the biblical Christian believer looks at life and says everything is right. God has given us a world to enjoy and live in. Everything is right unless the Bible specifically says it is wrong. And some things are wrong. They are harmful and they are dangerous. Adultery is always wrong. Sexual promiscuity is always wrong. Lying and stealing are wrong. These things are never right. But there is so much that is left open to us if we are willing to obey God in the areas that he designates as harmful and dangerous. Then we have to rest the rest of our life to enter into company with Jesus who loves us and who guides us and guards us in our walk with him. Paul says that whatever benefit these things may gain, it's it's only temporary. It all ends in death. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. That is why Jesus took the Pharisees on. You, You observe these minute rituals, but inwardly you are tombs filled with dead men's bones. 
Outwardly, you look good, but inwardly, you're like a grave full of rotting bones. Your scrupulous refusal to live normal lives gives you certain status and privilege, but it will all prove worthless in the end. And then lastly here, Paul declares these things are of no value in in restraining the indulgence of the flesh. People may outwardly appear dedicated and disciplined, but inwardly sin rages unchecked. Inside, they're angry, resentful, filled with a spirit of vengeance. We try to regulate the externals instead of walking in the fullness and the freshness of life with Jesus, finding the inward purity and cleansing that he alone, he alone excuse me, provides. All of these errors have one thing in common. They lose Jesus. And so if we fall into any, we lose that vitality, that vigor of our walk with Christ. Life becomes dull and desperate because he is the one who can develop that self-life and yet keep us from being captured by the great God self. He will restore and comfort us when we fail, when we falter. And in submission to him, we find the actual freedom that we're looking for. Close today with 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Amen. And God bless.